Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For for of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Do keep Ephesians 5 open. Let's pray. Father God, as we look at uh, hard things tonight, we pray that we would be willing to be corrected by you. We pray also that we would see how rich and beautiful your truth is, that we might rejoice to walk in it. Amen. Uh, Evening. If we've not met, my name's uh, Phil. I'm the Associate Minister on the staff here. It's lovely to have you with us. And we've got a fairly heavy topic tonight. It's all about sex and love in this passage. And we are a culture that is both obsessed with sex and love, but also deeply confused about it. Quite how deep that confusion was. Really came home to me this week. Somebody in the congregation sent me a podcast to listen to. I'm so, so down with it. And uh, the, the podcast called The High and the Low, and they were discussing, they discussed all sorts of cultural things. And they were discussing an article on pornography that shared some of the terrifying statistics such as since 2007, which is when uh, free internet porn basically exploded in availability, there has been a 1,000% increase in uh, men who find that they are really struggling to have sex with real women. We also talk about the countless surveys that are showing teenage girls are feeling pressured into acting out brutal porn fantasies, and their boyfriend seems to think this is just normal. But all that, I guess, is fairly familiar to many of us. We've heard these statistics before. What was so striking to me was the the way they discussed them. Uh, The podcasters were so wed to a culture which says, look, at the heart of everything, I have the right to do what I want to do. My right to sexual fulfillment is like a paramount virtue almost in our culture. And so they said, well, look, the answer can't possibly be to get rid of porn. I, I must have the right to look at porn if I want. Actually, no, the answer here... The answer to these terrifying statistics, these awful problems, the answer is we need more and better and more feminist porn. That's the answer. That's like saying, look, we decided to decriminalize heroin and there has been a thousand percent increase in drug-related deaths and serious health problems. Clearly, the answer is we need to increase the quality and quantity of the heroin supply. That is just nuts. There is a deep, and dangerous confusion about sex and relationships in our culture. And I hope that what we'll see tonight is that the Bible's vision is true and rich and beautiful. The Bible has a better vision. Now, I imagine many of us will be resistant to that idea, but I hope as we look at the Bible together, we'll see it makes sense of this very core issue for us. Uh, What the creator's wisdom is in this passage is fulfilling, it's liberating, it's healthy. His design for love and sex brings life. 
and in a culture that has made a mess of sex and relationships. We can turn to God's word and we find truth for right living. And in particular, what we'll find here is that God calls us through Ephesians 5 to turn away from self-serving sex and instead live lives marked by self-giving love. Okay, uh, let's just locate ourselves. Paul has spent three chapters in this letter that we're, this is the last of our, our, of the current series in Ephesians. And he spent the first three chapters of this letter to the church in Ephesus in Turkey, telling them what the gospel is. So telling them about the core message of Christianity, which is that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has restored our relationship to him. And he has paved the way for peace with one another. And more than that, he has given us a new life through the Holy Spirit. And so, chapter 4, if you look over, chapter 4, verse 1, as forgiven people, reconciled now to God and to each other, he calls us to live out that freedom. 4.1, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And in the rest of chapters 4 to 6, he works out in the practical details of everyday life, okay, what on earth does this living out the calling we've got? What does it look like to live out the life that God has given us? And in these particular verses, it's where what it means is to live a life of self-giving love, not self-serving sex. Okay, you've got the points uh, on the sheet there. Uh, firstly, please God with self-giving love like Christ. Look with me, chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice. Now, if you come here on a Sunday morning, it will not take you very long. Uh, Matt sadly is ill this evening. He was going to be leading. Uh, But if you know Matt, our senior minister, it will not take you very long on a Sunday morning as you survey the children running around to work out which one is is his son. I mean, the, the family resemblance in the Fuller Men is rather striking. And the point being made here, the point being made, also, I think that's probably enough. On the, uh, the point being made, um, it's just distracting. The, the point that the Bible makes again and again and again when it talks about imitating our father is there ought to be a family resemblance between fathers and their sons and daughters. Now, as Christians, we're not to be like God in every way. So we're not to receive worship and praise of other people. That's not for us. That's for God only. We're not to speak out new cosmoses into creation. We just can't do that. Now, when the Bible says imitate God... It always means morally, morally. So throughout scripture, you read, we've been studying in 1 Peter, and 1 Peter quotes Leviticus, both the New Testament and the Old Testament, where God says, be holy because I am holy. We are to resemble our heavenly father in his holiness, his his beautiful moral perfection. That's what that means. In his generosity, his kindness, his compassion, his justice, his truth. And in particular here, we are to imitate him in his love. Now, we're as confused about love as we are about sex these days as a culture. It is Christmas very soon. I hope that hasn't escaped you. And that means that love actually will be on TV within the next few weeks. It has been pretty much ever since the Magi visited the baby in Bethlehem. And if, you, if you're one of these uh, people who doesn't consume culture and has no idea. Love Actually is a uh, Britcom, which is basically a series of interlocking stories. Uh, each of them is all about love. But if you've watched it, you'll know love means radically different things in each of the stories. 
And what's striking is how selfish it is in so many of them. Uh, so love is my need for lots and lots of no-string sex in one of the stories. It's love spelled L-U-S-T. Uh, or love is my obsession with my best friend's wife. That means I'm really willing to, to screw up his marriage because I feel the need to tell his wife how I feel about her. Or uh, love is my desire to lure somebody out of their marriage that's been going for 15 years. But love here has a very, very different meaning. This is love as self-giving, as modeled by Jesus. Verse 2, live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Gave himself up is Bible shorthand always for the cross, for Jesus' death in our place. And this is a love for people who are not loving him. The Bible's explicit about that. It's a love for people who are not lovable in and of ourselves. It's a love for people who do not deserve his love. It's love as, if you like, active rather than passive, if you get what I mean. So uh, passive love, it means I love in response to something lovable. I, I like the way that person looks or makes me feel, and so I respond with love. That's passive love, stirred up by how lovable they are. But this is active love. This is, uh, this is love that comes from within. I choose, I decide, God covenants. He wills to set his love upon us. And then he loves us because of that. It's active love that I decide to lavish on someone. And such a love, we're told in verse 2, is a fragrant offering for God, which is rather weird. It's like the Bible's describing Jesus as divine potpourri. And you think, what, what is going on with that? It's actually sacrificial language. The Old Testament is steeped in language that talks about uh, sacrifices, all of which point to different things about what Jesus' death on the cross will do. And one way that the Old Testament talks about the sacrifices is as a sweet aroma that pleases God, as the, as the smoke from the burnt offering uh, wafts its way upwards. If you want to chase it up, look at Genesis 8, 20 to 21. Uh, sacrifices kind of, uh, as the burnt offering goes up, it's as if God enjoys the smell. And the point he's making, therefore, here is, look, God himself is marked by self-sacrificial love. It's core to who he is. And so when we act with self-sacrificial love, when we copy him in that, well, we're loving just like he loves. And he loves to see that in us. And our act of love, our self-giving, our serving of other people, it pleases God the way that Jesus' death pleased God. It's an extraordinary thought. I mean, let's be honest. Those of us who would call ourselves Christians here, if we're really honest, an awful lot of our lives must just be a stench in God's nostrils. You know, think about the things that on a daily basis we think about inside, that we long for in our hearts, some of the stuff we say with our lips and do with our bodies. So much of our lives, if I'm honest, just must be an absolute stench in God's nostrils. But when we love other people, when we put our own needs to the side and focus on how to serve others in spite of the cost and inconvenience, when our lives are marked by generous, other-person-focused, open, sacrificial love, well, then we're a sweet aroma that makes God smile. 
And you know what it's like there, the first day when spring really takes hold in London. And you walk through a park and the, and the sort of damp, rotten deadness of winter is finally passed. And the warm sunshine has started to bring the new buds and the shoots and the flowers out. And there's a sort of fresh, sweet warmth in the air. And you cannot help but, you can, you can smell spring as much as you can see it. And when you do smell it, it just makes you smile. That is exactly how God feels when you and I serve other people. When you and I bear the cost involved with giving of ourselves to serve others. We make God smile. And so Paul calls us to please God with self-giving love like Christ. The opposite of that life of love is a life of sexual immorality. Verses 3 to 4, when he tells us, avoid self-serving sexual immorality and instead cultivate thankfulness. So verse 3, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Okay, let's start just by defining our terms. So sexual immorality is a generic term covering uh, it's a, a sort of junk drawer of all the sexual behavior not endorsed by the Bible. And if you work through the Bible from beginning to end, you'll find there is an incredibly broad range of sexual activity described, but there is only one kind that is endorsed. According to the unchanging words of our all-knowing creator, the only rightful context for sexual arousal or activity is a lifelong, faithful marriage between one man and one woman, where the sex strengthens the intimacy and the permanence of the marriage. Sexual immorality. The second term, impurity, is a bit broader, but it still relates to sex. He's saying, look, it's not enough that we avoid sleeping with someone we're not married to. We must turn away from impurity. If you think of a sin like mud, he's saying it's not enough that you don't eat the mud so that it goes inside you. Don't play with it. Don't get filthy on the outside either. Avoid all impurity. And then this third phrase, a greed. Well, it can mean greed in general. It does in some places. But the context here seems to be more about the greed to have someone. Lustful desire, if you like. And so God's word warns us against not just wrongful sexual behavior we act out with our bodies, but also the, long, the wrongful imaginings and longings that we indulge with our minds. Instead, we're told there is to be not even a hint of sexual immorality. Verse 4 continues in that vein. So if verse 3 says, don't be sexually impure in the things that you do with your body or think with your mind. Verse 4, don't be sexually impure in the words that you speak with your mouth. Instead of obscene language and filthy jokes, there should be thanksgiving. Now, I think there are three questions here. Okay, firstly, one, why is sexual immorality held up as the opposite to the love he wrote about in verses one to two? Why does he move from saying uh, self-giving love is a great thing, so avoid sexual immorality? Why is that the opposite? Two, why is it bad to even talk about it? Uh, Verse four is all about speech, and verse three literally reads, sexual immorality, impurity, and lust should not even be named among you. Why is he even talking about it so bad? And thirdly, why is thanksgiving the answer to this in verse 4? I mean, if I, if I told you, uh, the Bible says avoid sexual immorality and instead you should, would you immediately think, oh, the, the end of that sentence will be 
uh, prioritize thankfulness. Hmm? Just seems a bit odd. So let's work through those three questions. Firstly, why is sexual immorality held up as the opposite to love? I think the answer is because true love like God's love for us in Christ is about self-giving, meeting the needs of others. Whereas if we're really honest with ourselves, sexual immorality is all about self-serving, meeting my physical or my emotional needs. And a working assumption of most of the advice columns we'll read in our culture is that we should each be looking to fulfill our needs, our preferences. It's Our culture is all about me, curved in on myself, focused on what I want. And that is the opposite to what the Bible says love should be. We kid ourselves that it's mutual. But under the layers of self-deception in our heart of hearts, if we're honest with ourselves, sexual immorality grows out of a sense, I deserve to have my desires met. And if I can say this, this is what makes pornography so utterly unhealthy, so inherently unhealthy. It's not just that so much of it is, is created through the abuse of trafficked, enslaved people, although that is true and wicked. It's not just that it damages your ability to function sexually if you do marry, although that is true and tragic. It is that every time you look at porn, you train your mind and your body to see sex as about me satisfying my desires. You train yourself every time you look at porn to become more selfish. You poison your heart every time you look at porn. Sexual immorality is the opposite of love because it is self-serving. Okay, why is it so bad to even talk about it? I get maybe why he says, you know, don't do it, but don't even talk about it. Don't joke about it. Why? I think the answer, again, is quite simple. Actually, our words shape us. They shape how we think about things. So back in the early 2000s, England was starting to get very good at rugby for the first time in well, basically forever, um, but, uh, which was rather fun. And, uh, but there was always this gap between, as good as England were getting, the All Blacks, New Zealand All Blacks. And the coach, Sir Clive Woodward, did something very, very interesting at the time. He banned anybody involved in the England setup from calling the New Zealand team the All Blacks. He insisted they just call them New Zealand. Because the All Blacks was a, was a name with mystique and awe. And he realized that every time they talked about the All Blacks, it was just cementing in their minds this view that they were an invincible rugby force who would always come out on top. And so he wanted to, no, no, call them New Zealand. Just another team. Just another 15 blokes there for us to beat. They're mortal. They're beatable. And it worked, actually. The the England team started not to lose the games before they walked on the pitch. They beat them home and away in the year leading up uh, and won the Rugby World Cup, which is a gratuitous thing to mention, but um, I felt like doing it. Uh, But our words shape things. Our words matter. How we talk about stuff shapes it for good or for ill. And to turn serious, when we talk casually about sexual immorality, and much worse when we joke about it, we normalize it, we domesticate it. It stops being like a serious offense that grieves God and starts being, ah, it's just a bit naughty, not such a big deal. And I don't mean we should go all Voldemort and, you know, the sin that must not be named. But don't be naive. Please don't be naive. How you talk about 
different sins, and in particular here, sexual sin. How you discuss uh, celebrity sex scandals and what your friends are up to, they shape your attitudes and can soften us to sin. The joking about it dulls us to just quite how dehumanizing and destructive sexual sin is to us and to others. Our culture is being torn apart. It's not something we should be joking about. Okay, thirdly, why is thanksgiving the answer, the antidote in verse 4? And it's just not the most obvious thing to go for. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. But actually, uh, cultivating thanksgiving is one of the most powerful defenses and antidotes to sexual sin. Because it undermines the sense of entitlement that drives so much of my weakness to face down temptation. If I keep saying to myself, I have a right to sexual fulfillment, I have a right to sexual fulfillment, I'm never going to be very strong to resist sexual temptation. But being thankful teaches me I don't have a right to stuff. When I do have good stuff, it's a kind gift of God, not a human right. And when I'm thankful, when I, when I cultivate thanksgiving, it makes it much harder for me to believe the first lie that everyone has to believe before we can sin. There's a lie you have to believe before you can sin, whatever the sin is. It's a lie that Adam and Eve bought in the garden. And that is the lie that God is not good for withholding this thing from me. That's the lie. God is not being good to me when he withholds this thing from me. If I'm constantly thanking God for the stuff he has given me, I'm much, much less likely to deceive myself or believe the deception of others when I say inside, God is miserly and unkind for denying me this thing. If the constant background music of my life is God has been good, God has been kind, God, you are generous, God, you are good. Well, the thankfulness strengthens my belief. God is good, so this can't be that he has been unkind to me here. It softens our hearts to God, and it protects us from the bitterness and the resentment that makes sin so easy. But thanksgiving doesn't actually grow naturally. It's interesting, in the New Testament, thanksgiving is never, it's never a response. It's always a command, as far as I can tell. It's not something that just kind of happens. Oh, nice things happen, and I say thank you. And it's always commanded, actively put on thanksgiving. So here's a healthy habit for you, something very, very practical. Once a month, write down a list of every single thing you can think of thanking God for. Make a pact with a a friend from your small group or with a prayer triplet. Send each other once a month every single thing you can think of thanking God for. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'd be very surprised, those who call yourselves Christians... Who here doesn't want more strength in the fight against sexual temptation? Well, here's something practical. Build your sense of thankfulness. Kill sexual immorality. Cultivate thankfulness. And then thirdly and lastly, don't miss God's eternal inheritance and face his wrath. The last verse is really just, what they do is they give us some brutal warnings to help strengthen our resolve. Thankfulness will help strengthen it. Because it will strengthen our attitude to God. But there are also some warnings here for when now the thankfulness doesn't work. Verses 5 to 6. 
For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Let's start at the end with the the comment that um, sexual immorality, uh, that sort of greed, sexual greed is, is idolatry. Why does he say that? It's not wrong to want sex. It's a good gift of God. But when I want something so much that I'm willing to disobey God to get it, at that point I've put sex above God. I've said, God, you say this, but I want that, so sex matters to me more than you. And so at that moment I commit idolatry. I effectively make sexual fulfillment my God. And like all false gods, That kind of sex will always disappoint or destroy us in the end. It can never fulfill the way God does. So that's why he calls sexual greed idolatry. Now the first part of uh, verse 5 is rather stark and I suspect a little bit terrifying for many of us here. Of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. That's why sexual behavior matters. That's why as a church, we can't just agree to disagree on this. It's a salvation issue. You cannot walk towards God's eternal inheritance in paradise, which is this way, at the same time as walking towards sexual immorality, which is this way. They are opposite directions. You can't walk opposite ways at the same time. That's why Paul says it's a salvation issue. You can't be pursuing both at the same time. It's just impossible. You're either pursuing Christ, trusting him, or you're pursuing sexual immorality. Now, it is very, very important also, though, to notice that he doesn't say anyone who commits, no one who commits an immoral act, or an impure act, or a greedy act, can share in God's inheritance. Rather, he talks of an immoral, impure, or greedy person. So he's not saying, if you sometimes fall and give in to sexual temptation you are condemned. Otherwise, every person here would be condemned, myself included. Because every one of us, at some point, fails. Whether it's just indulging a lustful fantasy, everybody fails. Now, his target here is those who are being defined by these sins. Those who live in them unrepentantly, who are walking that way. It's not that they're walking this way and falling, and getting up and walking this way and falling. Now, they're walking the other way. Okay. So how often do I have to give in before I move from the category of a Christian who is following God faithfully but stumbles occasionally to, well, a sexual sinner who's heading for eternal condemnation? Where is the line? The Bible doesn't give us a line. Because I guess if the Bible gave us a line and said, this line here, this is the line, so far, no further, how many of us would be tempted just to get as close to the line as we possibly can? I'm still the safe side. Now, the Bible doesn't work that way. The Bible says that way is death and condemnation, and that way is eternal life. Why would you walk that way? Walk this way. I mean, imagine there's a, there's a minefield at the side of church over at the serving area. There is no minefield, but imagine there is. And you ask me, how far does the line stretch? 
well, it's around the serving area, but this side, the main bit of church, is safe. Well, you would be an idiot if you spent the time after the service just tiptoeing as gently as you could, as far as you could. I don't care how tasty the cakes are. It is not worth the best cake in the world to risk being blown up. You'd be stupid. And the Bible tells us that way is condemnation, that way is eternal life. Which way are you going to walk? Surely you're going to walk that way. Now, one of the problems, though, for us is is the problem that he recognizes in verse 6, which is there are lots of people saying, there's no minefield. Consensual sexual behavior can't be sinful. Seriously, get over yourselves. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Now, the the church he's writing to in the first century are in Ephesus, which is a city dominated by the massive temple of Artemis, or Diana. And the the worship of Artemis, Diana, involved orgies, and the city was hugely sexually immoral. So the stuff that they watched on TV, and the opinion pieces they read online, the attitudes of friends and family, all around them was a culture that basically said, look, sexual indulgence is no big deal. It's normal and healthy. To be restrained or celibate, my goodness, how odd and unnatural are you? I mean, can you imagine living in a culture like that? How hard it would be to be a Christian. Of course, the empty words don't always come from outside of the church. Sometimes they come from within. It is just a disgrace how often senior bishops in the Church of England, who are desperate to be popular with a culture that doesn't actually care about them, undermine the Bible's teaching and question whether what the Bible calls sin is really sin at all. But it's easy to throw bricks at them. I want to warn us about the danger that's actually within these walls. Because I think that there is a danger that amongst us, worldliness can masquerade as maturity. You can get this sort of attitude develop amongst us that, you know, we're we're not those weird Christians, we're pretty normal, we understand the culture, we know all the lingo, we fit in well. And you start to convince yourself that people who question your attitudes, and I'm not sure you should be joking about those things, oh, don't be so judgmental, you're being a Pharisee, it's the ultimate put down. And you just start to look down on the sincere efforts of ordinary Christians to be godly as just naff and a bit geeky and sad. I mean, they're just the sort of Christians you don't want your non-Christian mates to meet. And you get this just, this awful attitude can develop at times in church where, where we act as if the really mature people amongst us can play with things, toy with them, joke about them, because we're strong enough and mature enough. And that's a sign of our maturity. When it's not, it's just a sign of our worldliness. And I do think, if I'm honest, that in the past, this, there are lots of sins we haven't committed as a church or aren't prevalent amongst us, but I think this has been a problem in the past. And the consequences have been, frankly, awful amongst us. Maturity is not the ability to remain a Christian while I play with filth. Maturity is that I avoid filth altogether and enjoy the good things that God provides, what he calls joyful and true and healthy. Because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. 
Sexual sin isn't different from other sorts of sin in many ways. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6 says it does get to the core of our being, so it often brings more shame. Uh, We know that about sex, but it's not different from other sins. All sin is sin. God hates all sin. Jesus died to pay for all sin. But it does matter. And we're in a culture that's telling us it doesn't. God's righteous, unbearable judgment is coming to expose and punish sin. All sin. Sexual sin included. And so sexual sin matters. So what do we do with a passage like this? Well, I've told you some specific things. Cultivate thanksgiving. Don't play with sexual sin. If you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian here, can I encourage you to turn to Christ? His death on the cross brings forgiveness for any and everything any of us could have done. There is no guilt or shame so deep that his death doesn't wipe it away. And that forgiveness is on offer tonight. You can leave here forgiven, clean, and perfect before your heavenly father. Those of us who would call ourselves Christians, let's resolve again to turn away from self-serving sexual immorality and to turn once more to the self-giving love that Christ models for us. His ways are best. Trust his wisdom. Sin tastes sweet in the mouth, but it leads to death. God's design often requires self-sacrifice now, but it brings life and joy and security. And it also works. It brings the best intimacy, the deepest and truest friendships, and the securest relationships. Follow God's example as dearly loved children and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Amen. We're going to share the Lord's Supper now. I'm very pleased we're going to be doing this. Because in the Lord's Supper, we have assurance of our forgiveness. We remind ourselves what Christ has done, what that fragrant offering was. The Lord's Supper is given that all who participate may remember Christ's death on the cross once for all to pay for sins and his glorious resurrection to reign at God's right hand as Lord and Judge. It's given that we who are in need of God's sustenance and fatherly care might feed on him in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. It's given as a memorial by Jesus himself and practiced by his apostles and earliest followers. In the same night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and gave you thanks. He broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way after supper, he took the cup and gave you thanks. He gave it to them saying, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Therefore, heavenly father, we remember his offering of himself made once for all upon the cross. We proclaim his mighty resurrection and glorious ascension. We look for the coming of your kingdom. And with this bread and this cup, we proclaim Christ's death until he comes. Let us pray together the words of the confession. 
Lord God, we have sinned against you. We have done evil in your sight. We are sorry and repent. Have mercy on us according to your love. Wash away our wrongdoings and cleanse us from our sin. Renew a right spirit within us and restore us to the joy of your salvation. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We'll share the Lord's Supper um, from the front. In a moment, I'll call those who are coming to serve uh, to come up to the front. You'll just be invited to come up in rows. Uh, If you're aware that you are a sinner and you know that you couldn't just approach God the way you are, then you're very, very welcome at the front if you trust in the Lord Jesus because he has done everything to pay for our sin. And how wonderful as we hear the convicting words of Scripture warn us of the seriousness of sin. That we can do more than just hear our assurance. We can eat it. We can taste it. And remember that Christ's death pays for all sin. So even if you're not a regular member of this church, if you trust in the Lord Jesus, you're welcome at his table as forgiven people.